Welcome to Sexual Craftsmanship, the podcast that teaches you how to develop sexual confidence and become a better lover using a system of practice suited for dating and sex in today's world. No experience necessary. And now, here's your host, certified sex coach, sociologist, and mega nerd, Sarah Martin. Hello, craftsmen. How are you doing today? I, hmm, well, I feel like I say this every week, and I guess that's because it's true. I'm doing really rather well. It's been an interesting week with an awful lot of good stuff happening, talking to lots of interesting people, making new connections. I'm excited to soon be introducing some more special guests to you and to this podcast. And actually, that kind of brings me to the point, because today I am sharing with you uh, the first special guest appearance on the Sexual Craftsmanship podcast. Today, I'm really excited to share with you an interview that I did with the fantastic Sean Miller. And Sean is one of my favorite kinds of academics because the work that he does and the research that he does has really practical applications in our world for each and every one of us as normal human beings. And my opinion tends to be that research that takes place in the ivory towers, you want that to be able to translate into into real life. And Sean has come on to the podcast to share his expertise with us about this topic of sexual autonomy. And it's an area where I've actually got quite a lot of opinions and insights as well. So I invited Sean to join me here on the Sexual Craftsmanship podcast and for us to have a conversation about it. So I'm going to transition you right into the interview that I did with Sean. It's it's a little bit longer than your typical sexual craftsmanship episode, and I think it's really worth it. Uh, what I'll say here up at the top is that if you do enjoy this episode, please tell a friend about it, and be sure to like or subscribe or follow this podcast so that you never miss an episode. So without further ado, let's pick it up. Here I am, about to introduce you to the fantastic Sean Miller. I am joined today by a special guest, and I really couldn't be more excited to introduce you to Sean Miller. He'll introduce himself in a moment, but let me, let me do the, the initial honors. Sean was born and raised in Utah and went on to earn his PhD in philosophy and is currently an independent scholar focusing on the philosophy of love and sex which includes sexual ethics, intimate interactions, and reforming gendered expectations. He currently resides in Washington, D.C. Sean's research interests currently include BDSM, sexual consent, positive male sexuality, and investigating how sex robots could change our intimate lives. And if you know anything about me, I'm a little bit obsessed with sex robots, so this is just perfect. So, is there anything you'd like to add to this introduction, Sean? Uh, I think that was a great introduction. I that, that basically concludes everything about me. <laughs> <laughs> well, we shall soon see, because the point is to dive a little bit deeper. And guys, I wanted to let you know, I learned about Sean's work through a post on the Men's Lib subreddit. If you've never checked it out, please do. It's a really great and friendly community there. Uh, which was pointing towards the excellent talk that he gave at the Wiltzig Erotic Art Museum's Tea and Sex series. And Sean was talking all about positive masculinity, and I decided to do a little bit of espionage, you know, that like online spying thing that we all do in the 21st century, to learn a little bit more about him. And I, I got really interested, and I couldn't help myself. So I tracked down an email address and reached out. And... One thing I thought was really fantastic to potentially bring to all of you today is that Sean's done some work which points towards a really interesting view of consent, 
uh, not as like a one-off transactional event, but rather as a practice and a process central to sexual autonomy. And so that's what we're going to do today, right? We're going to have a conversation about the power of sexual autonomy. And I think actually that it has the power to radically transform sex lives. We're also going to take a look at how it can open the doors to greater pleasure, satisfaction, and confidence. So with the intro out of the way, let's dive right in because I'm really eager to talk more about this. So the first thing I've got to know, Sean, <laughs> what is a philosopher doing studying topics related to sexuality? <laughs> what, what, what brought you here? <laughs> it's an interesting path, really. I actually started off studying physics in undergrad, and then I took a philosophy class as an elective, and I was just really enamored by that, that you can think about this stuff and um, make that into a study, a profession. And so I eventually took more philosophy classes and it came to the point where uh, I majored in philosophy and physics for that matter. But within philosophy, um, I read this history of philosophy and there was a certain philosopher, and he was philosophizing about uh, philosophy of love. And that really intrigued me because I thought, you can philosophize about that? <laughs> and so that really pulled me to investigate more. And so I went to the library at the university I was at, and I was just surprised by this huge section on the philosophy of love. And uh, I just took it all in. And that eventually led me to the route of philosophy of sex. And I was even more enthralled thinking, oh, my God, you, could, you can philosophize about sex as well. And so I went into that route. And, of course, with sexuality, it relates to other topics such as gender and uh, sexual culture and uh, sexual nature and then sexual desires and pleasures. And that led me to the route of thinking about sexual norms and expectations. And when people perform in these sexual frameworks, it's become so habituated in us that it almost feels natural. Mm. But I wanted to know whether these natural movements really were natural or if they were just part of our cultural imaginations and upbringing. And part of that investigation is psychology, but philosophers want to get to the root behind it so, mm -hmm. and, and trying to get to questions such as you know what is sex or how do we define consent uh what are some of the sexual norms that are good for our well-being and do the various theories about our sexual understanding do they give us certain ideas about whether they're ethical or not and why and so those questions really inspired me to think deeply about the nature of sexuality, the ethics of sexuality, and questioning our assumptions of what our sexual nature is and some of the ways that we can reform it. That's exciting. And isn't there something wonderful about being, wait, you can, you can look at this through this lens? <laughs> I am a sociologist, right? And mm -hmm. so when I found out, well, hang on, all the sociologists are interested in sexuality, not all of them, but there's a decent number and a discipline that welcomed it. And I really love the way that you, that you described that, that excitement and the, basically the rabbit hole that opened up from this, this discovery. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it, it's, I mean, Socrates said that philosophy begins in wonder and uh, that just pulled mm. my curiosity toward that route thinking, oh, all these assumptions and ideas we've had, um, we can question them. And that, that curiosity definitely brings in excitement. Well, yeah, there's certainly something to be said about curiosity when it comes to sex, that's for sure. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm wondering, what was it in particular that led you to consider consent specifically as an area of research? I was working on my PhD dissertation and mm -hmm. that dissertation was investigating the moral assumptions of sex education classes in the United States. Mm. And there are well-known theories about how to teach sex education. Um, abstinence only is a major one. Um, 
which is a problem, definitely. Yeah. Um, some more comprehensive ones that were popular in the, well, starting actually in the 1920s, but it really kind of took off in the 60s and 70s is more of a risk assessment, sex education. Mm-hmm. So it's to, uh, sex is uh, an activity, but here are some ways to protect yourself. Yep. And then lately, I would say within the past 10 to 15 years, we've transformed into this new type of sex education, which is a consent-based sex education. And it's fairly new. And usually when you have a new curriculum or a new theory or a new approach, it starts to gain some traction. But because it's so novel, it opens up the field of, well, how does this theory work? How does the application work and how useful is this theory and how, how can we teach it? And I think it's largely gaining some traction because a lot of the reasons such as uh, gender equality is slowly becoming more mainstream. Um, the Me Too movement is largely revolved around consent or the lack of consent and yeah. a consent-based culture. And for, for the longest time, Sexual assaults used to be about stealing a woman's virtue, but now it's based on non-consent. And so while I was working in this field, I looked into many sex ed curricula and looked at what philosophers had to say and what sex educators had to say and see how they teach or think about consent and how they define it and what are the consequences by teaching a certain view of consent. And this field has slowly opened up to new avenues about thinking about consent in philosophical circles. And that's how I got really intrigued by that idea. Wow. (laughs) I'm I'm just sitting here absorbing that because, and, and that's maybe a topic for another day, the research that you did for your dissertation, because that must have been fascinating to take a peek under the hood of a number of different sex ed curricula in the U.S., which, I mean, it's a controversial topic there. It is pretty much anywhere. Mm -hmm. So thinking now a little bit about consent, I'm kind of, I would love to hear your take on why you think so many men are totally turned off by talk about consent in the context of sexuality. It's something that you mentioned the Me Too movement. Mm -hmm. And I remember during the Me Too resurgence a couple of years ago, the number of people that were getting quite defensive within my own circles surprised me a little bit because to a certain extent, I feel like some of these things about consent are a bit of a no-brainer, but then again, I'm me. And I would love to know what you think is behind that, that sort of defensive, that hashtag not all men, that oh, it's definitely not me. Why is everybody talking about this? Oh, another person got me too. I can't feel comfortable at work talking to female colleagues anymore. What's your take on that? Yeah, so it's, it's really fascinating how people react to it. And I, I think the reactions against it have different motivations. Whenever I talk about consent in, in my class, when I teach uh, philosophy of sexuality, a lot of students are turned off by it. But I think it's mostly just from listening to them. Sex is supposed to be titillating, exciting. It's supposed to be about desires and pleasures. Consent is so legalistic. And when young people think or talk about sex, thinking about the law or legalities is the last thing on their mind. And so sexual laws, according to my students, is really boring to think about, unless you're a lawyer. And sex is supposed to be not boring. And so I think that's one reason why it turns people off. But another reason, and I think you mentioned this before when you are saying, you know, we're just so used to it. With, with uh, at least with my generation, um, consent was slowly becoming a thinkable prospect for sexuality. But younger students, they've grown up with that idea that consent should be the baseline before sex happens. And so when they grow up with it, it becomes part of their ideas and something that they don't investigate. I mean, why investigate something that just seems like a normal thing? But Mm -hmm. what they don't realize is that by investigating it, it reveals things they don't know, things that they assumed. 
things that they maybe they should rethink about consent. Now, specifically with men, especially with hashtag not all men or the Me Too movement, I think it's part of the way that we've assumed and think about consent. When we think about sexuality and how to initiate sex, I think most of it is very gendered. And the way that consent is thought about is also gendered. Mm. Sex can't continue unless you experience some mark that says that it's okay to continue. And if there's some sort of aversion from the other person, then you can't continue. Otherwise, you're good to go. But in our culture, men are the pursuers. They try to retrieve consent from the other person. So this automatically sets up a system where men not only initiate sex, but they try to persuade or convince women to say yes. Now, automatically, this favors men. And if it favors them, then why change it? Why challenge it? And so that's already fraught with problems, is that the understanding of consent, the way that it's understood in our culture, is already favoring men. And so that's why I think a lot of men don't really want to think about or questioning it because it's it's already in their benefit. Yeah. I mean, I'm sitting here and kind of having a bit of a mind blown moment. My own research, one of the outcomes from it was around distinguishing interest in sex. So interest as an interest in a field from a sociological perspective, which basically is sex a means to something else, or is it an end in itself? Mm. And that, what I've found, tends to be what makes a difference between pleasurable sex and sex for the sake of something else. The way that you put it just now, it dropped into my head. It's like, that's the difference between consent as a means versus consent as an end. And the result's the same, right? And I can see how, if you're approaching it as like, okay, this is a thing that I have to get in order to get to the other thing that I actually want and how that could be conceptualized as like a bit of an onerous part of the process, like something to be overcome, a hurdle, a thing that you extract from someone else. It's when you said that my brain lit right up versus the idea of consent as something that is an end in and of itself. It's just part of the path that you walk if you want to have really pleasurable sex. I also think it was really interesting your mapping out a couple of different objections to it. Because when you said, oh, it's like legalistic and boring, I was sitting here thinking, well, I mean, only if you approach it as if it's legalistic and boring. And I think there was something too as well when you said that the generational difference between assuming that consent is part of the process versus like accepting that consent is part of the process, but you still really have to think about it to make it happen. That's just going to be taking cognitive energy, right? That's another hurdle to get over in a way. Do you see what I mean? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, I think with a lot of people thinking of consent as a means, then a lot of people will say, okay, what's the end goal I want? Well, I want sexual pleasure. I, I want to express my sexuality and if I have to retrieve consent to get there, okay, then that's the way to do it. Now, uh, one interesting example of this is that lately there's been a reformulation of consent where it's a yes means yes. So with, with the yes means yes, I, that is something that I definitely think is better than the standard traditional model. But if you don't Which challenge... Is, what's the standard traditional model? Oh, the standard traditional model is like the no means no. Okay. And so the, the no means no means that uh, you can proceed with sex unless you hear a no. Whereas the yes means yes is kind of reversing it, saying you can't proceed unless you get a yes. Well, the whole point of, of that is to ensure that everyone involved really wants to, and that's why they say yes. But if you don't challenge the culture, then all it does is it still keeps that framework in place where men are thinking, okay, I still want that goal of sexual pleasure and consent is the means. Oh, but yes means yes. Okay, well, that's just an extra obstacle. So now I have to just convince my partner to say yes. 
and we're good to go. So if you keep that structure in place without challenging the culture that you have, yes means yes is just an added obstacle, but it mm. still keeps men in, in charge. It still keeps that dominant culture in place if you don't challenge it. Well, and it lacks a lot of nuance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like b- both of those models lack any appreciation for power differentials is the first thing that comes to mind. Mm-hmm. And I also see a real danger in in what you just said that, you know, it keeps men in a, a position of power because then also when men aren't consenting to things in the sexual sphere, it can become even harder to get over, right? Like it can become even more difficult to report or to speak up for yourself. And there winds up being this internal tension about, oh, well, you know, I'm supposed to always want things and I'm supposedly the one with power here. Like it's a, it's a paradigm that hurts everybody as far as I'm concerned. Yes, I totally agree um, that without any sort of challenge behind that, um, then everyone involved have to have to meet these gendered expectations and that for men, that includes why I have to constantly be sexual. I have to constantly be desiring sex. Even if I'm personally not in the mood, that doesn't matter. I have to meet those masculine expectations. Mm. So I'm wondering, apart from these two models of consent, so the no means no and the yes means yes, uh, which other models have you looked at in the course of your research? So this is really fascinating. Um, by looking at different curricula and what philosophers had to say, I've taken all these different views of consent, and just for simplicity, I've reduced it to three different types. Uh, the first type is sort of a, a low-bar view of consent, a minimal account. And what this means is consent just means a voluntary, informed agreement. And if you break that down, that means no coercion, it has to be voluntary, and no deception, it has to be informed. Now, this looks pretty good, and this has been the starting point of what consent looks like, probably starting from the 1970s, 1980s. But there have been some challenges, and I think one of the best challenges to think about is people who are involved in a sexual encounter where they technically consent i mean it's a voluntary informed agreement but they feel they agreed to that because the other option was bad and there's a philosopher her name is robin west and she has a lot of vignettes and she says look there's a lot of situations where women are in relationships that's not that great and can be abusive or it's not beneficial to their well-being but they still say yes they still agree and they still consent because the other option is worse where there might be meted with some violence or whatever and that's harmful and so this minimal account of consent this low bar view isn't that great so there needs to be a better account and so another account is sort of a high bar consent a more idealistic view And this high bar, it takes the idea of consent and it expands it to include certain uh, criteria that you have to meet. And if you don't meet that criteria, then anything below that bar is automatically considered assault. And I think one of the best examples of this that I've looked into is you have to make sure that both people involved are desiring what they want. They're not doing it because of bad circumstances. They're not doing it because they feel stuck. They do it because they genuinely want to. And -hmm. sometimes this is rephrased as enthusiastic consent. Yeah. And the enthusiasm is this excitement. It's they really want to. They're really desirous of what they want to do with the other person. Now, by doing that, it expands the definition of consent to not only an agreement, but now it changes the definition to desire. Mm. And once you go down that route, 
it makes the ideal view sort of problematic. And here's some examples. Suppose you have a long-term, stereotypical, traditional married couple, and for all intents and purposes, it's a healthy marriage. One person says to the other, do you want to have sex tonight? The other person says, okay, why not? Now, the person who says, okay, why not? Not enthusiastic, but I don't see a problem with that. I mean, they're still consenting. And with a background that's a happy and a good marriage, I don't see that as a problem. Another example is, uh, suppose that you have a couple who really wants to have children. And so when they're having sex, it might be exciting at first, but let's suppose that after months of trying to be pregnant, it's just not working. And so maybe in the third or fourth month, when they're really trying, the sex is either tedious or it's not as fun or they're not really desirous, but they really want to have children. So that's the reason why. So when they have sex during that time, they're not enthused about it, but they're doing it because they want to have children. And so again, I don't see that as unethical, but I I think finally the, the major problem is that a lot of young people, especially in our culture, a lot of young women are still trying to figure out their sexuality and trying to figure out their pleasures and desires. And sometimes they don't know what they like or what they want, especially in, in our culture, female sexuality is such a taboo topic. And so if you have young people who don't know what they want exactly, or are still trying to figure it out, but they still consent to sex just because their curiosities and their uh, other mismatch of pleasures are pulling them toward that, even though they're not quite sure. And again, let's suppose that the context is it's, it's, it's a good encounter. Then I don't see that as a problem, but the high bar, the idealistic view would say, no, that is a problem because they have to be enthusiastic or they have to meet these criteria. So that's the high bar account. And then finally, I call this a contextual view of consent. I guess it's like the middle ground between the minimalist view and the idealistic view. But the middle ground says, okay, we have to take a look at the context of what's happening. And the context counts. And so with consent, what it traditionally has been doing is you have a checklist of things you have to check off. And once those things are checked off, then boom, that's it you have technically consented. But I think by looking at the context, by seeing what's happening in the sexual encounter, um, making sure that everyone involved does it in the right way and not because they feel stuck or feel like the other option is some sort of harm. Even if there's no enthusiasm or if there's no excitement, does the context allow for that? And so that middle ground is something that I think needs to be addressed. And I'm more sympathetic to that position, actually, that middle ground contextual view of consent. And is that contextual view of consent, is that what you see as being a piece of sexual autonomy? Because I'm having that resonance now. The way that you explain this is brilliant. And context does play into asserting your autonomy that, yeah, like maybe I'm not too enthusiastic about sex. I read an essay once where somebody called that, yeah, all right, sex. They called it Mexican dinner sex because they didn't really <laughs> like Mexican food, but some their partner really does. And so sometimes they go eat Mexican food. I love Mexican food, but. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I thought that was a perfect example that, yeah, of course, we all do that sometimes, right? Now, it would be a problem if you were eating Mexican dinner every single night and you didn't have a say otherwise. Mm-hmm. But. And yeah, like there is a certain amount of autonomy there and saying like, yes, I am aware that I'm not fully enthusiastic. And you know what? I want to anyway, for my own reasons. Like, is that part of what you're you're driving towards with this concept? So in a way, yes, I, I actually think that all three of those different views of consent have their own take on sexual autonomy. And the minimal account 
the way they view autonomy is, well, it's just basically choice. You, as long as you have choices, then you're autonomous. But you can see how that's problematic. If you have a choice between having this sexual encounter and the other choices that you might be harmed, mm-hmm. well, this minimal account of consent will say, well, look, you still have a choice. But that seems like a very low bar of, of what it means to be autonomous. The higher bar does have a view of autonomy as well. And it's much more elaborate, much more sub- substantive. And that view of autonomy says, as long as all oppressive markers or all oppression is gone, then you're autonomous. Now, I think that would be great if all a- oppression was gone. But if, if that's the standard, no, no oppression, then virtually no one is autonomous. <laughs> Because, because we're all oppressive or all under modes of oppression in some fashion or another, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And so my view of autonomy with this middle ground takes a look at autonomy in a different way. I, I don't think of autonomy as a matter of choice or willpower in the, uh, in the essential sense. I see autonomy kind of like a skill where you build that autonomy up over time and you gain a skillful mastery of who you are and you see yourself as someone that directs your life and you you gain that skill over time just like any other skill and by developing that skill then that's how you can develop these other things that we think about when it comes to autonomy, such as willpower or choice. But I think to develop that willpower, uh, you have to develop uh, a skillful way of looking at your willpower. And so I see autonomy as more akin to a type of skill. See, now that's exciting because the great thing about skills is that they can be built and there's no formulaic checkbox And it's very practical, the idea of taking a look at autonomy and translating consent through the lens of autonomy in this practical way, I think makes this really accessible to a lot of people and brings it down to earth instead of these concepts that are talked about by clever people. But then what does this actually mean for me when I'm out on a date with somebody? What does this actually mean when I'm about to start a hookup? And I'm curious about your perspective. So what if we all kind of adopted this view, right? If this really caught on, what do you think people stand to gain by adopting a practice? I'm going to call it a practice because that's what I hear when you say skill, because you practice skills, right? Mm -hmm. Adopting a practice of sexual autonomy. Like what possibilities do we unlock by taking this approach instead? I think it helps us understand whether someone really engages in some sort of activity out of their own doing or if it was because they just went along with it, either through peer pressure or social expectations. Now, if they're doing it out of their own doing, then that means that they did it from themselves. They directed themselves towards that activity. They actively saw this as a choice and they genuinely wanted to do it. And they see that activity as genuinely part of who they are. With autonomy as a practice and the skills, uh, a collection of skills, then the person begins to develop a bigger sense of who they are and they become more, more integrated. Whereas if you are doing things just to go along with it, then you're more fractured. And so everything that you're doing it may not genuinely come from you, but you're just going along with it because it's just part of the conditions around you. Now, someone without autonomy, they're not going to be actively choosing, but passively going along with what is happening because it's either expected of them or because they just don't understand or don't see or have never experienced other possibilities. And so without knowing those other possibilities, they didn't realize that they could choose otherwise. Mm. I think adopting a a richer sense 
of sexual autonomy and practicing sexual autonomy uh, helps us gain a better sense of who we are as sexual beings and become more integrated as people. Yeah. I'm sitting here like nodding along like, yes. Uh, and I'm curious because you said a collection of skills. I'm, I'm wondering what are the skills that live inside of sexual autonomy? So this is something that I'm still thinking about. And mm-hmm. again, looking at um, what philosophers and sex educators have said, but broadly, some philosophers have said um, knowing how to communicate well or introspection analytical reasoning, self-nurturing, all those things that can build self-definition and self-reliance. There's this, uh, there's two sex educators that I really admire. They are Michelle Fine and Sarah McClelland, and they point out that sexual agency skills would be things like asking for help or negotiating risk, um, engaging in critical analysis about their sexuality, pursuing pleasure, trying to figure out if you're ready or not, the courage to put up your boundaries, um, the acceptance of someone's boundaries, and emotional intelligence. I think all of those would help. I think all of those are skill sets with a particular sexual flavor so that when people develop them, they get a better sense of who they are as a sexual being. That is both awesome and really validating because <laughs> that I see these skill sets reflected in a lot of the, the teaching and the coaching work that I do and with, with a little bit more besides added in. So I find this really thrilling, really exciting. And I'm wondering to kind of build on some of that excitement, as it were, how do you see this practically applied? So how can you bring sexual autonomy with you to a date or to a hookup? The examples I gave earlier, like what would that look like? I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) I think when it comes to dates, you have a sense of what you want out of that date. Do you want or are you comfortable or okay with having sex on the first date? Okay, then you let that other person know by communicating. You set up, this is what I would like, uh, and have a conversation revolving around that. And then seeing what sort of avenues or boundaries that takes on whatever the other person agrees to. Now, with a date, if they're not comfortable having sex on the first date or having sex at all at that time, then their skill set is, okay, I know myself really well. I'm not just going to go along with it, but I am going to set up my boundaries and say, this is what I want, or this is what I don't want, and this is what it's going to entail. And by sticking with those boundaries and knowing what those boundaries are, I think it helps people get a, an idea of not only who they are as sexual beings, but it reflects on them what sort of people they can be out in the world when they go out on dates or on hookups. With hookups, I think it's, it applies in the same way, but it's more carefully nuanced where mm. we, we see consent being played out in a gendered way. We mentioned before that affirmative consent, this yes means yes, that's great. But what happens after the yes? In hookups, there are many studies that show when men receive pleasure, they receive it far more than women do. And it's known as the orgasm gap or the pleasure gap. And there's lots of reasons why, but I think part of the reasons have to do with the social expectations of what does what to whom. And the idea that we have is that men are active, women are passive, men engage in sex, women let things happen. And again, in this framework, the active participants, which are the men in this case, are more autonomous, and that leads to pleasure. Women in this case are passive, and so it's harder for them to receive pleasure. But more than that, if if things just happen, they have a harder time directing themselves and their partner and to have control of what they want to happen. So sometimes small things like directing and communicating or Bigger things like saying, oh, don't do that, or not right there, 
can help. And since I see autonomy as a type of a collection of skills, that means someone is skilled in negotiating, communicating, critical analysis of what to do, taking into consideration of all their decisions on what they can do. And so with the practical applications of sexual autonomy, I think it plays out really well in dates and hookups and it gives them a direction of this is what I want. This is what's going to happen if the other person allows it. And I'm not just going to let things happen. If something happens, it's because I directed it in that way. It's like a vision pointing towards freedom from being run by social programming is the sentence that ran through my mind that you're driving the ship rather than being driven by what you believe you should do. I think there's something really powerful to that because a lot of my listeners, a lot of my clients, a theme that emerges again and again is I also want to feel wanted. How do I know that she genuinely wants to be here with me? And this both practicing the skills of autonomy yourself so that you can show them to others and creating the space for someone else to to show up as coming from themselves. I like that phrase that you used earlier. That's part of how you come to that place of knowing that, yes, this person really wants to be here and really wants to be doing these things and is dynamically present with me rather than in their mind, worrying about what's going on, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I want to tie this to the talk that first grabbed my interest uh, about you and your work. I heard you speaking about positive masculinity, as I mentioned at the top. And I'm wondering, could you just share with my listeners what you mean when you say positive masculinity and what role sexual autonomy plays in moving towards this vision of a positive masculinity or positive masculinities? Yeah, I I think positive masculinity is a type of masculinity that sees men in a new light. Whenever we think of men, our minds immediately go to this traditional mindset, which is that men are domineering or tough or strong or uh, at the toxic levels, violent. And anything against those traits are considered not manly. Now, when you have a framework like that, it pushes men to be more and more domineering. It's like an arms race where they have to level up their masculinity. And if you keep doing that, it gets to unhealthy levels where it becomes unhealthy. Now, positive masculinity is not to upgrade to this ideal thought, this ideal of what masculinity should be, but it's to upend the whole entire tradition of what masculinity could be. There's so many directions it could go. What I would focus on is the ethical aspect, uh, especially in the sexual realm. And this means that men ought to develop better communication skills with their partner, no ways to help their, uh, help achieve the partner's sexual goals, such as pleasure, developing a caring attitude to want to do those actions. And sexual autonomy and positive masculinity go well together because if men follow these traditional norms, they're just following social expectations when it comes to sex. They have to be the pursuers. They're expected to always desire sex. They can't say no when the partners request sex. And so that makes them too into the midst of these social the social frameworks where they have to just follow and abide what they think is the masculine ideal. Now, when you do that, those expectations are filtered into men's mindset where it makes you wonder, is he doing it because he really wants to or is he doing it because he's a man and that's what's expected of him? Mm. By developing sexual autonomy, though, Men can be more in tune with what they want rather than following some sort of gendered norm. And following these gender norms leads people away from being autonomous because they aren't their own selves, but they're just mimicking of the appearance of what men are supposed to be like. But a positive masculinity reforms that and where men can take charge of their own life and lead the life they want and not because they're following what's expected of them. I like that. It's a, What comes into my mind is that and it's links to another question that I had that that's really about leadership of your own life, right? And it's a vision of leadership that's not about domineering or dominating everyone around you or forcing people to follow you. 
but rather the I am here, this is what I want, what I want is valid, and I can do things my own way. Is that jiving with, with what you're saying? Oh, definitely, yeah. Um, it's trying to figure out this is what I'm doing, this is what I like, and it may coincide with gendered expectations of what men are doing, but at least their motivation is, well, this is coming from me, not because it's expected of me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm hearing in that too, that it's also holding the space for the other person or persons who are there with you to, to also assert their autonomy, right? It's being a little bit detached from a set outcome is, is what I'm hearing too. Yeah. By taking into account the other person's autonomy, that informs what you can or what you should do instead of saying, well, this is what we're supposed to do. So it doesn't matter what you can or should do of, of what you think. Yeah. And, I, and I'm wondering, so this is such a, a polarizing topic a lot of the time I find. And I'm wondering from your perspective, like, what do you make of traditional visions of masculinity? Do you see anything helpful in, in some of what you've outlined here? Because I've gotten a bit of a sense about where you see them causing problems for men. I'm wondering if you see, is there anything that's kind of worth taking along on this journey towards a vision of positive masculinity? Yeah, so I think when it comes to traditional masculinity, there's, there's two parts. The first part are these characteristics that men display. Um, and it's, it's a nice, tidy box. And these characteristics are what we mentioned before, like being strong, being dominant, taking charge, um, not being emotional, being active and the like. And so this just categorizes men's characteristics in that stereotypical way of what men, of what men do. But the second part is the, the should component. And it says, okay, so here's the typical characteristics of men, but that's how it should be. So men have to achieve the ideal of what a traditional man is. And if you fall short of that ideal, then somehow you lose your credibility of being manly. And this should component is so strong that people give shoulds to each other and they have to follow this ideal. And if not, then we say that the person isn't manly enough or is weak. The first part, those characteristics, essentially I don't have a problem with that as long as people see it as just characteristics and simply that, just characteristics. Now, if that sense, if people want to work on being stronger, being more active, then go for it as long as it's genuinely coming from you. It's the second part, the, the shoulds, that I have a problem with. By telling people this is how you're supposed to be, this is what it means to really be a man, and it's constraining people in, in, a, in a box of what gender is supposed to look like, then it creates problems by everyone trying to achieve some sort of status by displaying their gender correctly and that we can shame those that don't do it. And so that's the problematic feature. It's the shoulds, that second part that I don't find really helpful. I was waiting to see if you were going to mention shame because there's this line of thinking that goes the way you can identify shame is by looking for the word should. And then you went out and said it. So I'm like, all right, (laughs) there it is. Perfect. Uh, And the thing I find too, the thing I find a little bit frustrating about some of this approach and in particular the should angle to it is that it also never ends, right? It's a hamster wheel where you're constantly having to validate that man card and that's exhausting. That's the sense that I get, especially when I'm speaking with people or working with clients is, man, like that sounds really tiring. It is tiring (laughs) when you have to constantly work on yourself to meet this ideal. And this ideal didn't come from you. It, it, you were just born in this society where that ideal was just around. Then it does get exhausting, especially for those who either don't like the ideal, but they still feel like they have to because they don't want that, that shameful emotion. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it does get tiring and exhausting pretty quick. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is maybe a good moment for me to ask, in your view, what do you see is missing in the way that society treats men specifically today? 
And do you think that moving towards a greater sexual autonomy could help to plug some of those gaps? Yeah, this is tough because I think men would benefit if they could express multiple ways of masculine expression instead of just one type. I think teaching people how to be autonomous overall, including sexual autonomy, would help. And because I think autonomy is a type of a skill, I think that helping people develop those skills are important. Now, part of this means a bigger social understanding of what it means to be autonomous. If we think about what it means to be autonomous in the typical American view, it just <laughs> simply means to be free, you know, the freedom to do what you want. Um, but that's, that's the minimal account of what it means to be autonomous. It's, it's, you know, you have to do out of sheer will. But I think a better way is to see it as a set of skills, and those skills would help foster your life for well-being. Now, that's the challenge. How do you teach people to negotiate risk, ask for help, engaging in critical analysis and pursuing their pleasures? How do you teach people to become more responsible and to be aware of their responsibility for their actions? Now, this means that we need a new revolution of, of education, but that's a large picture where we can teach people that autonomy and sexual autonomy is having more awareness of who you are rather than drifting by letting the structures wash over you. So instead of fitting in, see how you fit yourself. And education nowadays is, is not teaching those skills. It's more about teaching people certain content. And I think it would be a great benefit if we could figure out how to teach people personal skills of how to become a better human being overall. The thing is, it's really not that hard. <laughs> like, mm. that's the thing is, I, I do this for my work. And, and what I'm hearing here is like, yes, it would be amazing if we had this in school so it was widely accessible to the world. Because realistically, there really aren't that many sex educators out there. I know it can feel sometimes when you're immersed in the community that there's loads of us, but comparatively, really not that many. Mm. And it's, I don't think it's hard. Like it's, it's actually pretty straightforward because while you can't systematize interactions, you can systematize a lot of the basic principles that go into these skills. And I work, my, my listeners, the, the people that I love serving are men in STEM. So I'm working specifically with systems thinkers by and large. So that influences my approach to teaching some of this. And I think in terms of bringing it to the wider society, it would help us if we got over the idea that it's so hard <laughs> because it's not, at least in my experience, it's really not. That's interesting. Uh, what, what grade do you teach to, to help these people? So I'm a certified sex coach. I work exclusively with adults. Okay. Um, so I work generally with single people. I don't see couples anymore. And I'd say about 95% of my clients are men. So that's why I take a real big interest in, in exactly what we're talking about here today. But in terms of how you translate this into school education, I would also think that, again, it really wouldn't be that difficult to take some of these top-line topics and, again, kind of break them down in a way that's really approachable. That's That's the bread and butter of what I do. So, I don't know, hook me up with some of your sex educator peeps and let me see if I can help. <laughs> but for the purposes of this episode today, I'm wondering for somebody listening who's saying, hey, yes, I want to live a life of greater sexual autonomy. What would you say would be the most important thing that they could start doing from today? I think a good starting point is listening to your body. The body is a great communicator. And I'm reflect while I'm reflecting on this, I read a book by Peggy Ortenstein. It's called Boys and Sex. And there's a particular chapter in there where these young men, they're in college, and young men in college, the expectation is they're supposed to hook up with as many women as they can, and they are supposed to be constantly sexual and, and um, engage in one night stands. And so there's these young men who try to do that and they're trying to be as emotionless as possible. They're trying to mm. fit into those, uh, those ideals of what it means to be a man. And lo and behold, they can't perform. 
because their body wasn't engaged. It turns out that when they wanted to connect with someone before they had sex, even with one night stands, um, their body was saying, well, wait, I'm not feeling this connection here. Hmm. And I think it's best if you listen to your body and then seeing if this is, if this feels right or not. Now it's going to be more nuanced, but I think that's the general approach. Um, there's another sex educator. Her name is Emily Nagoski. Yeah. And she said that if your body is saying something, but you're acting in another way, typically it's your body that's right. And perhaps you're acting in a certain way because of social expectations. And I think she was mainly writing for, for women with her research, but I think this would work really well for men too. Yeah, I think absolutely that the the body acts almost like a compass in a bit mm -hmm. of a way. And building that skill of embodiment and presence in the body and noticing the the signals your body gives you, I mean, maybe that's another skill to add to the umbrella of sexual autonomy, right, is embodiment and sensual awareness. And thank you as well for saying about hookups, because I, I feel like sometimes I'm just repeating myself and shouting into the void with saying that you can be connected and having fun and being playful and and all of that with somebody that you'll sleep with once and then never see again right you don't have to shut down that whole part of being human when you're going into a hookup interaction I feel like I tell people this on a really regular basis but yeah as we're coming towards the end of our time together today I'm just wondering for you in this research journey and this journey of discovery that you've given us a little bit of a peek inside of today. I'm wondering what has been the most impactful for you as you've been engaged in this work? Like what stays with you when, when you step away from the books? I think the big takeaway that I gained from this is that sexuality is much larger than we think. Mm. Uh, it's definitely nature. It's definitely culture. It's our various actions and thoughts and feelings, but it's mostly the expectations that we put on ourselves and how we can try to dismantle those expectations. And that's the challenging part. Uh, when we grow up with them, these expectations just go by the wayside because they're ingrained in us. And so when we can say to ourselves, well, why are we doing this? Our immediate response is to say, well, that's just what it means to be a man or a woman. And if that's the immediate thought, maybe we should step back and see what's really considered manly or womanly and see if that trait is something that we can unlearn, uh, unlearn that process, unlearn that thought, and let go of that expectation. Yeah, get rid of those shoulds. Is, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, and I think that's a pretty easy way to start, too. Like, just notice when you think should to yourself, and just always pay attention to that. It's, mm -hmm. it's a big clue. So, Sean, thank you so much for spending this time together with me today. This has been awesome. I've, <laughs> I've really enjoyed it. And I'm wondering, like, what's coming up next for you? Do you have any interesting projects in the works or that you'd like to let my listeners know about? Yeah, I've got a, a couple of projects. Um, one I'm working on right now are moral obligations and sexual pleasures. And I'm taking a look at that orgasm gap. And I'm thinking because of that gap, do men have a higher ethical obligation than women do to close that gap? And that's something I'm investigating in. And another thing I'm working on are sexual robots, actually, and seeing if sexual robots tells us something about our, the nature of our sexual desires. And if those sexual desires tells us more about who we are as sexual beings. Fantastic. Well, I, for one, am eager to see what you will produce. So please keep me posted and I'll be sure to share it with with my community if, if it's something you want disseminated more widely than academic journals. And mm -hmm. for anybody whose curiosity is piqued, how can folks learn more about you? How can they learn more about your work? There's two main places to go. Uh, I'm, I'm mainly on Instagram and that is coffee and research. And I usually just have my research with me with the coffee I'm with. And I just take pictures of that. And it's, it's had an interesting following. And I've had a lot of fun with that, actually. Fantastic. Um, Very on brand. It is. 
the the other is uh my website it's a uh, seanmiller.blog all right so again sean thank you so much this has been an absolute pleasure and for everybody listening i hope you've taken away a lot from this conversation and i will be back with you right here next week thanks for listening if you want to jump right into the sexual craftsmanship process, head on over to sexualcraftsmanship.com backslash friendzone and download your free guide to avoiding the friendzone for good, including five exact scripts you can use today. 